Uh, in his book, Blame It on the Brain, Ed Welch uh, plots the changes in uh, psychology in the 1990s. It's a very interesting book. He says in the 1990s, uh, mental well-being, mental health, uh, psychological disorders were, were brought to the forefront in the modern world like never before. It's an American book, so he cites uh, President Reagan's struggle and battle with Alzheimer's. He said it became uh, common knowledge to talk about Alzheimer's in a way that in the past it had been treated as a sort of a stigma. Suddenly it was uh, on every page of every newspaper around the world. It had worldwide exposure like never before. In the same decade, in the 1990s, there was huge advances in the understanding of how the brain worked. There was new technological advances, so the brain could be viewed and x-rayed and scanned, and uh, it could be stimulated and understood. There were huge advantages in, and advances in how technology enabled us to see the brain, but also to care for the brain and to uh, stimulate and aid brain function. Huge advances. New treatments were possible as well as, as well as new views and new understandings. It's huge positive strides were made in the 1990s, says Ed Welch. But, as well as these huge advantages, there were also, uh, the brain was used in modern language like never before. In the political sphere, politicians, one in particular, started to say something like this. I know I've done something wrong, but it was my brain that was messed up. As well as being understood, the brain was also now used as uh, something that could be blamed and it wasn't morally responsible in terms of human attributes anymore. It wasn't me that did it, it was my brain that was confused. I need to have my brain rewired. In a moral way, the blame could now be passed on to the brain, says Welch. You could hear that in the political sphere, and you could hear it perhaps in modern language, even in 2016 as well, where you have struggles as the age of psychology has continued, where you seek to understand how you are motivated, and it's how your brain uh, over or supersedes or has overarching power over your heart. It wasn't me, it was my brain that did it. It wasn't me. It was a, a motivational construct in my brain that needs to be rewired. I am who my brain tells me I am. No moral responsibility. You blame it on the brain. It's a very helpful book. You can go to uh, Waterstones if they still exist, or you can go to Amazon that certainly still exists. You can get your hands on that book. And in the second half, it says something that you will not find in any self-help book. You will not find in any psychological book. And that is Underneath the modern understanding of how the brain works, beyond the images of the brain that we can see from x-rays, there is a, a deep truth that we don't want to admit. There is a deep truth that we don't want to give credence and adherence to. Beyond the scope of the self-help books, beyond the scope of Amazon and whatever Waterstones would have us buy, when you're frustrated... When you're angry, when you go to pull someone's hair in the playground, if you can remember far that, that far back, there is a truth that actually beneath the motivational structure in our hearts, beneath the blame that we want to put on our brain, the source of all these is something quite, it's an uncomfortable truth. 
that we need to think about if we want to understand this passage. There's a deep enmity, not just from husband to wife from time to time, not just from child to child in the playground around the world, not just from foreign governments. It's there in our hearts, and there's a deep enmity between us and our maker. You see, we have a problem with authority. It's not just children that struggle with authority. When we're born, we're not morally neutral. We're not, to quote the sound of music, we don't have a heart going 16, going on 17. That's an empty page for someone to write on. We are born with this default position in our hearts that we hate authority. And we especially hate God's authority. There's an enmity of which the Bible speaks that you will not find in any self-help book. There is a, a default position in every human heart. Romans 8, 7 says, the natural mind is at enmity towards God. God is not our friend. He is our enemy when we are born. He is not our close ally. He is an enemy whose word we do not want to listen to, whose voice we don't want to give credence to, whose authority we won't recognize, says the Bible. Left down to our own devices, this truth, this revelation from God, we suppress it. We push down upon it. It's a truth that we don't want to hear. It's a message that, left to ourselves, we will not acknowledge. Left to ourselves, we are enemies towards God, not friends. We can try and get to him by our own religious efforts on our own terms, but it's a God of our own making. And in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, there is a problem with authority. Why do I say this in introduction? Because this passage is all about authority from verses 1 of chapter 20 right the way through to verse 20 of chapter 20. Jesus is in the temple, he's teaching once again, and the chief priest, verse 1, and the scribes and the elders come to him and say, what's this you're teaching? What authority do you have? They're angry at God. You can see that at the end of the parable, when Jesus holds up a word mirror to the religious authorities and says, this is how you've behaved. This is the responsibility that you had and you've ignored it. This is the truth that was revealed to you and you suppressed it. This is the air that was sent and you killed him or you will soon. You can see the natural inclination of the human heart from these two bookends. It's a questioning of God, verse 1 and 2. What authority do you have, Jesus? And when that authority is explained, the second bookend, verses 19 to 20, says they wanted to catch Jesus out and they wanted to kill him. It's, a, it's an acted out parable that we can see, but let's look at the parable itself. It's in three sections, three relationships, verses 19 through to verse 18. Three relationships. It's the relationship of the tenants to the owner. That's the first thing. Then you get the relationship of the tenants to the messengers, the people that the owner sends, and then you get the relationship of the tenants to the son. And that's the most important of all. Let's look at the first one, verse 9. The relationship of the tenants to the owner. How do they behave with the owner? Look at verse 9. They are told to tend his vineyard. Verse 9. Here's a, a parable, says Jesus, to explain how much authority I have. A man planted a vineyard and he let it out. He sublet it. He gave a signed contract, if you like, to tenants. And then he went away on, to another country on a long journey. He goes on a journey, and the owner who's put in all the money, who's had all the investment, who takes all the risk, charges tenants to uh, 
tend his vineyard. He's taken considerable risk at this point. There's no landlord insurance. There's no direct line. There's no Winston Wolf if you've got a problem with your landlord or if you've got a problem with your tenant. He's taking all the risk. They will receive pay for their work, but the owner should receive benefits for his inheritance, for his, uh, as it were, his deposit of money and his risk taking. They are to tend it by his word. They are to tend it for his profit. Those two principles are inherent in every business transaction. When an owner uh, gives responsibility to a tenant, he says, this is how I want you to look after it. And this is the profit that I expect to see at the end. They can't uh, do what they want with the vineyard. They've got to keep it in accordance with the owner's instruction. They can't ignore making a profit because they want to do things according to the owner's word and also tend it for his profit. They get their pay, he gets his profits. If you put money in, you expect an investment out. You pay somebody to work and the profits and the deficits, well, they're the responsibility of the owner. And Jesus is speaking these words to the religious leaders. You can see that from verses 1 and 2 and verses 19 to 20, as we've said already. And it's a clear reference, this picture of a vineyard to the Old Testament. You can look in Isaiah 5. You can go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2. You can go to Psalms in the middle of the Old Testament, to Psalm 90. And in each of those passages and others as well, you have this clear image of Israel being described as a vineyard. The owner is God. The tenants are God's people. God gave Israel a homeland. They had no land. They were a nomadic people. And God made promises to Abraham and says, I'm going to provide for you a land. That's a remarkable promise that God made and he kept. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you the law so you know how to behave and how to live. And it's a picture of the covenant of grace that comes to us in Jesus. I'm going to meet with you like no other people in the face of the world. And I will do that in various ways and at various times. But I will meet with you in the temple. And you have to prepare yourself as you come and meet me. It's the principle of the vineyard. It's an Old Testament picture that Jesus says... You want to know about my authority? Here it is. I'm the owner, but I'm also the son. You are the tenants, religious leaders. You were to tend and to look after my people. You were to realize that the authority is not your own. It's a divulged, it's a divested authority that you are to use. You're to care and tend for my people. I will send prophet after prophet to tell you how to look after my people, to how to honour the promises and to keep the covenant. But you've not listened. You've not given credence. You've not given adherence to my promises. You've put your fingers in your ears. You've used the power that I've given to you as tenants for your own benefit, for your own gain. You're like wolves when you should be shepherds and they refuse to listen to the messengers. They refuse to listen to God. And in this parable, Jesus is saying, this is the problem that each one of us have. You'll find it in no self-help book. You'll find it in no psychological book. You can look into the brain and the answer's not there. It's an issue of the heart. It's a default position that we all have. We forget that we are tenants. We want to live our lives as if we're the owner. And that's the big problem that is underneath the whole of this parable. 
Jesus has to tell it because the religious leaders have forgotten who they are. They're behaving like their owners. But actually they're tenants. That's the original context, but it's also applicable to us. Think about what God gives to us. We're not Jewish people here this morning, but God has given us a mind. He's given us resources. He's given us homes to live in, whether we own them or whether we rent them. He's given us a certain amount of possessions and money and privileges. We have to decide what our own values are. But our default position is we are the captain of our own ship. We are the master of our own souls. We set the agenda unless God intervenes by his mercy into our hearts. We suppress the truth. We say, shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. It's the heart of sin and rebellion. We do exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. We should be giving God honor and glory and praise. We don't give him a second thought unless God, by his mercy, comes into our hearts. All of us, whether we're children or not, stamp our feet and say, we are tenants, but really we want to be owners. There's all sort of ways that we can see this in our lives when we, we act like owners, but actually we're tenants. One way is you can say, I'm going to decide how to use the money that you've given to me. You can stick your fingers in your ears back to the playground again and say, I don't like what you're saying, God, so I'm going to try and run from you. I'm going to stop going to church. I'm going to not read my Bible. I'm going to decide how I use my money in sexuality. I know how I should do it, but I'm going to choose to go my own way. I know I'm a tenant, but I want to live like an owner. It's the fierce impulse, the default position of the human heart to saying, shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. You see it in children all the time. I was outside doing some DIY, as is my habit, on Saturdays yesterday. One thing you don't have to tell children is how to behave sinfully. Adults just get it, we just do it more subtly. But we're just the same. I was out using a chop saw. It's a very powerful saw. And I said to the children, when daddy's using the saw, it's going to be on. Stay away from it. Just imagine if children, one of my children were to say, I know how to use that saw, and they decided to chop wood. And then off came their fingers. It would not be very good for me. I'd be in trouble with my wife. It would be bad for them. We'd be at A&E. It may get sewn on. It may not. But we don't have to tell children how to behave like owners. They want to get their own way, but they're tenants. And it's the job of parents. It's the job of grandparents to teach dependency, not self-reliance. To teach responsibility rather than living any way you choose. The Bible says there is something deeper going on in our lives. Each one of us, left to ourselves, think we can live independently. There's an illusion of independence. There's an illusion of power and self-sufficiency. And that's how these tenants were responding to the owner. We don't want you to be in charge. We want to be in charge ourselves. Aldous Huxley was an English philosopher. He was very honest. He wrote this. I'm not sure where, but I remembered it. He said, I don't want the universe to have a meaning at all. I want there not to be a God because I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. He knew that there was a God, but it was inconvenient for the way he wanted to live. He said, I wish there wasn't a God. I wish there wasn't a meaning to the universe so I can sleep around because that makes sense to him when God is not in the picture. Underneath this veneer of one of the most intelligent men in the whole history of England was a reality that he knew. And that sentence is one of many that shows it's not a matter of intelligence. 
It's a matter of rebellion in the human spirit and the human psyche and in the human heart that says, God, I don't want you in charge of my life. I want to be the owner of my life, the captain of my ship, the master of my soul. And Huxley wanted God not to be there so he could sleep with who he wanted to. That's the principle behind the whole of this passage. I want to be the owner, not God. I want to be in charge, not God. And we suppress the truth. It's how the tenants relate to the owner. Look at secondarily how the tenants relate to the messengers. How does the tenants relate to the messengers? Look at verse 10. There's a downward spiral that you may have noticed in the language. Look at verse 10. The first messenger is sent by the owner. Beating becomes verse 11. Beating and shaming as the second messenger comes. Beating and shaming, verse 11, becomes verse 12. Wounded and being thrown out. This is a historical reality. Time and again, God has sent prophet after prophet, warning after warning, and God's people have said, we don't want to hear a word of it. We are determined and set in our own way. Think of the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, if you get this from the job description from God, that I want you to go and tell my people a word, it's not the one you want. It's why Jonah ran away so quickly before God brought him back. Think of the prophet Jeremiah. He went and told God's people, you need to repent, you need to turn back to God. You're not living the way that pleases him. You've made a promise and you've broken it. And they beat him up. Most likely, he was sawn in two for what he said. But as well as the reality that the tenants ignore what the messengers say, and there's this descent of beating and unkindness and suffering, reflect also on the fact that the owner, the owner could have stopped at verse 10. The owner could have said, I'm going to send you a messenger to say, I'm coming back and I want to see how you've tended my vineyard. But have you thought how the owner doesn't do that? He sends a messenger and then another messenger and then another messenger and then his most precious messenger of all, his own beloved son. This tells us a lot about the tenants. It tells us an awful lot about the owner as well. Just as God sent messenger after messenger to his own people to remind them that they are not the owners but he is, God in his mercy comes into our life in a whole myriad of ways to burst the bubble of self-sufficiency, to shatter the illusion of self-reliance, to show us that, rightly put, we are a dependent and a needy people, and we won't find any rest until we find our rest in him. Think of these ways. Think of a parent. Perhaps some of us here can think of a parent or a friend who's coming to us in our life, saying, I need to share with you a message of truth. There's something very dear to me that I need to share with you. And perhaps somebody has shared with you the gospel. Think of another messenger. Perhaps it's a, a certain ministry, perhaps in uh, younger years of your life or in middle years of your life, where somebody got alongside you, perhaps in a Christian ministry, and shared the gospel with you. And that self-sufficient bubble was burst. And you've seen how much you need Jesus. Think about perhaps another messenger being sent from an owner. God sending another messenger to us. Perhaps it was a tragedy. Perhaps it was a loss of someone that you love dearly. Perhaps it was a disappointment or a frustration or a longing that was unfulfilled. And God used that reality as a messenger to you. 
And so you found yourself opening a Bible that grown dusty, or you found yourself in a Christian meeting that you hadn't been to for decades. And the message in all of these things is you are not in control of your life, but God is, and he loves you deeply. Friends, if you're here this morning for the first time, or if you're unfamiliar with Christian things, how are you treating God's messengers is an important question to ask. Here are the tenants. They were sent messenger after messenger and they beat them and sent them on their way. They humiliated them. Every single messenger was humiliated. How are you treating God's messengers in your life? Are you sensitive to what God is doing in your life? Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you slipped into some habitual habit of sin and someone has called you out on that, whether you're not yet a Christian and someone has brought you along this morning, How are you treating God's messengers is an important question to ask. Because often underneath this, when all the layers are peeled back, it's a deep-seated anger if you're mistreating a messenger because you don't want to bow to God's authority. You still want to say, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. It's how the tenants treat the owner. It's how the tenants treat the messengers. Thirdly, let's look at how the tenants relate to the son this is the main point of the parable verses 10 to 12 we've seen the descent that happens how beating becomes shaming how beating becomes stoning and now how beating and stoning becomes death look at verse 13 and the owner of the vineyard said what shall I do I will send my beloved son perhaps they will respect him But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. This uh, hostility that has been mounting, the hostility volume has turned up to the maximum now. And here comes the heir. They know who he is. They might see him from a distance. Perhaps they've questioned him, but they know who he is. And this enmity, this suppression of the truth, this rebelliousness of heart and spirit now is allowed to just run wild. Here comes the heir. Let's kill him. Verse 16. Notice the shock and the open mouths as Jesus gets to the punchline. When they heard these words, verse 16, surely not. They can't believe what Jesus says. No one would behave like this. But some people have. This is the one time in the whole of human history when God in Jesus made himself most vulnerable, most exposed, most most constructed to a span. And yet he was set upon almost as soon as he set foot on the earth. He was killed. He was stripped of his dignity. He was humiliated. He was crucified on the cross. The one and only time in the whole of human history, having spoken through prophets, and priests and kings. Jesus is sent as the beloved son of God and he's nailed to a cross. And friends, if I was there, I would have done the same thing too. And so would have you. Why did God do about this? What did he do to this attritional spirit, to this rebellious heart? What did he do? Verse 16, Jesus says, the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. And Jesus is saying, 
This beloved son whom you rejected religious leaders or you will reject, this beloved son who stands in front of you and speaks this authoritative parable, this beloved son who will soon be nailed to a cross, either you can build your life upon him as a stone, a foundation stone, or the same person, the same foundation stone will crush you. Here's the stone. It's the picture of building the temple, perhaps. The stonemason is there selecting the right stone in their hands and then cutting it accordingly. This one doesn't look right. It looks unconventional. It looks paradoxical. It looks like it won't fit into the structure that they have intended, and so they cast it to one side. But this stone that gives the whole of the structure strength and integrity and stability, this stone is the most valuable stone that they've cast aside. He's the most precious stone that the stone mason has put to one side. They could not see its worth. They could not see his worth. They could not see the stone's value. They could not see his value. And they considered him worthless. Someone whom they shouldn't esteem. And they cast him to one side. As I was thinking about it this week, I remember the scene in Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's that one scene in the film, it's better in the book, but there's that one scene in Narnia that is just so full of pathos. It's the scene when Aslan gives up his life, when his mane is shaven off, where he's strapped with strong cords onto the stone table, when he's surrounded by the forces of evil and darkness, and they chant and scream for his blood. It looks like he's out of control. And then he gives up his life. He surrenders himself with all the power that he's got. And it looks like every single promise that he made is a lie. But then amidst the tears, as the sun comes up, they hear the crack of the stone table being shattered into two. And every promise that he made was coming true. The spell that was on Narnia, so it was always winter and never Christmas, is broken. There's been a huge sonic boom through the deep magic that controls Narnia. That through his death, Aslan will defeat all the forces of evil. The spell is broken. That's a wonderful picture of the gospel here. When the owner says, what do I do? They've refused every tenant. They've beat them up, they've banished them, they've humiliated them. What have I got left to do to get through to the owners of my vineyard who are just tenants? There's nothing else I can do. There's one thing I can do. There's one more messenger I could send, but it will be so costly. But the need is so great and my love for them is so great. I will send not just my son, I'll send my beloved son. My beloved son whom I love, I will send him and they will kill him. They won't bind him to a stone table, but they'll nail him to a cross. It's going to look like the world has ended and every promise he made was a lie. But then on the third day, the stone table won't crack, but the stone will be removed. And the tomb will be empty. And every single force of evil that chanted at his death and crucifixion will be defeated, not in his life, but through his death. It's the paradoxical nature of the gospel. The only way for the owner to rescue the people that don't want to live under his loving rule is if he sends his beloved son. 
the son who shows up and looks like a stone that won't fit. The son who turns up riding on a colt going into Jerusalem. Paradoxical king who's great but humble, who's powerful yet who will die a weak and a painful death. This king is coming to rescue, to break the enmity, to enable friendship, to enable restoration, to give life, to show what true dependency and living under God's free, loving rule looks like. But it will only happen through his death and it will only happen through the cross. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 16, he says, on the cross, though we were enemies and we were mad at God, this is my paraphrase, there was a barrier between us that God has ripped in two. Now the only way that he could do that is if Jesus himself becomes the enmity. Our sin is too great. The cost is too much. But legally, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God reconciled the world. God and sin is reconciled. How is that possible? Not through the stone table, but through the cross. How? Legally, we are reconciled only because Jesus Christ became sin itself. Jesus Christ killed the enmity. He destroyed the barrier. He removed the gap because he became the gap and he was ripped apart himself. How can he remove sin by becoming sin himself? He who knew no sin became sin, that we might be freed from sin. It's the gospel. We were treated in a way that we don't deserve That's why I want you to read that book, The Glories of God's Love, because it explains the gospel. Jesus Christ got what we deserve so we can get what he deserved. But back to this sentence about the stone, and then we stop. Friends, there's a profound truth here, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, issues a warning, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on him... On anyone, it will crush him. You can choose to give credence and adherence and listen, and you can choose to surrender and become dependent on this king, on King Jesus. And you can build your life on his words, and you will be secure and safe when the storm of his justice comes. But if you don't, when Jesus Christ returns in majesty and power to judge the whole world, to rescue all those that are his, And take them to a joy-filled eternity when we see him face to face. If you don't, the same stone that you can build your life upon will crush you. It will judge you. That's what Jesus says. There's no in-between. How do you treat the stone? How do you treat the messengers that point you to the stone that you can build your life upon or it will crush you? The uh, Scottish author and Christian minister, George MacDonald, says, God... Thy will be done. I am not my own. You can say that at some point in your life. God, I've been living as an owner of my life, but I understand that I should be a tenant. God, thy will be done. I'm not my own. You can choose to say that up until the point of your death. But if you don't say that, at some point in the future, Jesus will look at you and say, all right, thy, your will be done. You are your own. You wanted to be an owner. You wanted to hold yourself up. You wanted to be in charge of your life. Go. Friends, Jesus Christ is willing to die for you. The beloved son. He was willing to become an enemy for you. He was treated like an enemy for you. He became the enmity itself. He became sin. And he knew no sin. Think of the height and width and depth and length of Jesus' love for you. Think of his mercy. 
that is time bonded until he returns. He was slain on the cross for you. That's the extent of his love for you so that we could be his friends. Friends, don't ignore the messengers. Let's pray. Father, this is a heavy truth, but because it's in the Bible, we need to own it. Father, please help us to be people who don't mumble when it comes to sin. Please help us not to be a people who don't look into the mirror and see who we are. We are rebels, not without a cause. We have a cause, and that cause is to suppress the truth and not give you the time of day. But Father, thank you so much for that time when the Holy Spirit was sent into many of our hearts, when rather than being an enemy of yours, we became your friends, so that we can truly cry out and call you Abba Father, we can call you Daddy, and we have a living personal relationship with you, Father, through your Son, who is now at the right hand. Father, please, I pray for anybody here who's keeping you at arm's length, whether they are not yet a Christian or whether they've become called to the things of God. Please have mercy on them again. And may this parable have been a messenger again to them. Amen.